Hello and welcome to Strong Habits, the feminist fitness podcast about all things training, nutrition and mindset. I'm your host, Penny Vovridis, and this is episode 70. Holy shit, 70 episodes. That's pretty impressive. Tapping myself on the back right there. Tap, pat, pat. That's the, that's the idiom, isn't it? Gosh, it's too late in the day for idioms. Anyway, how's everybody doing? I am alright, thanks. I'm currently trying to sort my house out so I can sell it. A decorator came round today and quoted me £1,500 to paint it and just tidy up the edges. What the hell is that? Cray cray. That's what that is. So I went online and bought some paintbrushes and some fine filler instead and I have some paint left over from when I moved in so I'm just going to see if I can do it without him. Wish me luck folks, wish me luck. It's a bit of a stressful time ahead to be honest but I'm really looking forward to this bit being over so I can move on to the next bit. I'm feeling optimistic about the next bit. Anyway, I have another special guest for you today. I recorded this before Christmas, this is the last of my pre-Christmas interviews that I have to share with you. I spoke with nutritional scientist and food and health writer Toral Shah, who runs The Urban Kitchen. We discussed nutrition for cancer prevention, as well as recovery, inclusive health campaigns, how to make vegetables delicious, and how fitness is political. Toral originally went to medical school. The goal was to become an oncologist, but when her mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, she realised that that just wasn't the career for her. She completed a degree in cell biology, specialising in cancer, and worked in research before going on to do a master's in nutritional medicine at the University of Surrey. She's currently putting together a PhD proposal looking at the impact of stress, diet and lifestyle on oestrogen-dependent breast cancer. We start the chat off talking about cancer and you'll notice that we get a bit sidetracked talking about race and prejudice and it's an interesting topic. It's one that you don't often hear fitness professionals delving into, which is a shame. Staying out of politics doesn't really make any sense when life is politics. I think I said this last week too, but if you are able to not think about politics and just know that your life probably won't be affected either way well that's a pretty privileged life if you know anybody working in health and fitness who likes to talk about this stuff send them my way or vice versa you know i'm always looking for cool guests podcasting is absolutely an introvert's way to make friends by the way I've been able to speak to so many incredible people over the last year and have had some really great conversations. People that there's no way in hell I would have had a chat like that with otherwise. In this episode, Toral mentions a few books. Now I'm going to pop the links to these in the show notes for you so you can click and find them. I also mention a website that I used to use for recipe building. Well, my friends, turns out it's now also an app so freaking cool. I'll pop a link to that in the show notes too. Now, I don't get anything from sharing these links with you, by the way. I'm just sharing the knowledge because it's a nice thing to do. I feel like a more money-minded, business-savvy sort of person would have contacted the app or the publishers for some sponsorship or something. Alas, never mind. No adverts for you. So just do me a favour, yeah? Can you share this episode with someone who you think might like it? Look, you don't have to decide right now. Have a listen, then pass it on. Means a lot. Without further ado, here's Toral. Thanks so much for coming on the show. How's it going? It's good. It's lovely to see you and your lovely dinosaur jumper. And I haven't seen you in real life for ages, so this is actually really cool. This is a real good treat. I think the last time I saw you, I might have actually still been a journalist. No, you were doing the PT already. I think we were at the foundry, so I can't remember, but who knows? Who knows? Well, thank you for being here. Can you introduce yourself and your work to the listeners? So I'm Toral Shah, and I am a nutritional scientist and functional medicine practitioner. What does that look like? And I think everyone's like, what is that? Um, so I see patients and I help them 
with optimizing their uh, lifestyle and hoping to reduce you know, disease risk by looking at their diet and nutrition, looking at their sleep, exercise and movement, stress relief and mental health, and also kind of their social health and whether they've got enough kind of support and you know friendships and things like that. And that's what I do. Um, I have a master's in nutritional medicine. I went to medical school. So I'm really kind of well-versed in evidence-based science. But I also think that we do need to look at people's health more holistically um, and because all the systems work together. And I think the westernized allopathic medical system separates everything. So your ENT is different from your cardiovascular health, which is different from your, like, you know, um, I don't know, let, let's say your diabetes or your pancreas. So I think we, we need to connect everything together because actually all your health is connected anyway. So if you're not sleeping well, it could be due to something else. So that's what I do. I also do lots of consulting for food and health brands. I write a lot of science content and blog posts. And I do a lot of work in public health, particularly in BAME uh, healthcare and in cancer. And I know that Penny and I are going to talk about that a little bit later on. Yes. So can you tell me a bit, about why cancer is such a big topic for you? So when I was 11 years old, I was a really precocious child and I had quite a high reading level. And I read a book about a cancer surgeon um, and he uh, treated teenagers with cancer and also had a child who had leukemia who actually died in this book, it was very sad. And in that moment, I decided I was gonna cure cancer because when you're 11, you think you can do these giant things, you don't have no idea what it's involved. So for me, the path was really clear that I would go and go to medical school and you know work in cancer, either oncology or in research and you know whatever. So got there, A, it was really different from how I imagined it, but B, my mother had breast cancer halfway through and that really changed things for me kind of really being at the receiving end of oncologist treatment and understanding how it was going to be you know, how how hard it is and you have to separate yourself but also the fact that they weren't giving much information to my mom about how she could get through and beyond and thrive post-treatment it was all about the treatment the treatment the treatment the physical treatment but not really about her mental health nothing about nutrition nothing about exercise and when to do it so my mom spent a vast proportion of her time with cancer just lying around and my mom is the opposite she's like a Duracell bunny so for the her that was quite weird and also they didn't talk about nutrition how to help heal your body so for me I started getting really interested in this and digging around in the university kind of dusty bit of the um, university archives to find information because there were some studies coming out but again no one really talked about nutrition then this is back in 1999 I'm a <laughs> kind of forward thinker in this way and um no one really really got the link and if you ever said anything to any doctors like what are you talking about there's no link between nutrition and health although we already knew from lifestyle disease like cardiovascular disease and diabetes that there was a, some sort of link and obviously there were results coming out from these large epidemiological trials in cancer showing that there were you know starting to be some links and some you know inferences were being made so that's how i really got involved to help my mom through her experience of breast cancer. I also felt out of love with medicine at that time. So I just didn't feel like the experience was as caring as it could have been maybe. And for me, that was really important why I wanted to work with people, why I wanted went into medicine. So I worked in research for a while, had a complete break from science and then went back and did a master's in nutritional medicine. And that's when I really started to get involved. And that was back in 2004. So well before nutrition became cool and trendy um but it's something i really could see would make a huge difference to people's life and and actually cheaply too because if we can prevent um disease it's cheaper than kind of trying to cure it absolutely can you share a bit about your own cancer recovery story yeah so i have some sort of familial link with about of breast cancer. So my mom's had breast cancer, my mom's sister's had breast cancer, and 10 of my mom's cousins have had breast cancer. So we definitely have some sort of um, genetic element, but we don't have any of the known genes. So we've been tested for the known genes, BRCA1 and 2, and TP53, and PALB2, you know, and others. And we don't have anything. So whilst I knew that something cancer might be something that happened to me, I didn't realize I'd be quite so young. So when I was finishing off my master's, I was 29 and I was diagnosed with breast cancer. But I was actually diagnosed with a slow-growing postmenopausal form of breast cancer. And most young women actually get very fast-growing, aggressive breast cancer. So hopefully there's something in what I was doing with all my nutrition and diet and lifestyle already that was helping me maybe to tip me in the scale of the favour of, you know, having a slower-growing cancer than a fast-aggressive one. You know, we'll never know unless I have a twin and that's just not ethical. But um so I'd already, you know, been finished, I was just about to finish the masters. I was working on my thesis and 
So I learned a lot about cancer nutrition in that time frame from the master's degree program and my own research. And I was in really good shape. I was doing triathlon. I was like training for my first triathlon. So I was quite lean. And I was already just eating a wide variety of fruit and vegetables and protein and just starting to really look after myself uh, in a way that maybe I had it when I was at university when I didn't really understand as much. So I do think it helped me. One thing I will say is that because I went back to the gym quite quickly after a mastectomy, and I obviously please do this with medical supervision. Um, I, I think it really helped me to recover. And I was already really fit and strong before. So we know with surgery and also with other treatments too that exercise now we know and anyway, the latest research that exercise actually helps previously they kind of wanted you to just lie around and rest like my mom and I think what the latest advice in Australia and other countries is to actually exercise right before chemotherapy right before radiotherapy and exercise as much as possible as much as you can so for me I mean that advice wasn't out there it was basically they're like nope you shouldn't be going and I went strapped up with my arms strapped up and I went and I couldn't do obviously any weights or anything but I did go on a spin bike two and a half weeks after my mastectomy. Um, and I, I think I wore two sports bras just to keep everything together. But, um, and I cried, don't even get me wrong. I cried every time I went for a month because I was just like, what happened to me? And I'm still here kind of, you know, and it, every time I exercise, it kind of released all the fear, I think, and emotions. But I think it made a huge difference. And I think eating well meant that, you know, I was able to be back at work in five weeks after but also I was young too like if you're 29 you are more likely to and you're fit and healthy you are going to bounce back from surgery and stuff a little bit more quickly so we have to remember that you know age obviously helps for some people anyway, not everyone um but I do think and you know my doctors will agree that it did help me to kind of recover a little bit more quickly and if you're having you know the right amounts of protein and um lots of fiber and vegetables that is going to help your body to rebuild essentially because protein is one of the building blocks and you need it to, you know, for wound healing, you need vitamin C for wound healing, you know, all of these things, zinc, again, to help with the wound healing. So, I, you know, making sure I was having a really good diet did help. I think what's really interesting talking about cancer nutrition is that it's kind of the same answer as other things. I was talking to a researcher about nutrition for brain health and heart health the other day, and the answer is the same eat lots of vegetables, have some protein, all of the fiber, have some oily fish a couple of times a week. I'm assuming that's- Yeah, the oily fish, nuts and seeds, you know, monounsaturated fats, you know, all of those things, so important. So then the answer is kind of always the same for whatever it is, whatever it is that we're trying to do, if we wanna be more healthy and give ourselves the best chance, it doesn't have to be complicated. And I think that's really important because it can be really overwhelming for people who, don't know what to do but want to do something when there are so many things out there telling you to do so many different things that don't always make any sense and I think the problem is that that we have social media and internet and anyone can talk about cancer every person who's ever had cancer seems to opinion you know what they should be eating yet the evidence is such and the World Cancer Research Fund do all this kind of massive research projects you know globally to look at what you eat and what lifestyle you lead and how it affects your cancer risk but also with you know prevention of reoccurrence and and how you can heal so I think I find it you know with all these things you know cardiovascular health diabetes brain health we just all need to be eating less kind of sugar and processed food and carbs and more of the protein and the vegetables and the fiber and the oily fish and the herbs and spices and legumes and basically the Mediterranean diet so Medita a mixture of the Mediterranean Asian diets and that's essentially what we need to be eating and like for example my father's been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and we and we're you know we're seeing a neurodegenerative functional medicines you know specialists so again like we're just shifting his diet he's been eating a traditional mixture of kind of Mediterranean diets plus the Indian diet. The Indian diet is a bit carby and not enough protein. So we're just moving him over a bit. And I can already feel the difference in him having more of these anti-inflammatory kind of foods. Like he's having some like oily fish three times a week now, as opposed to once a week. And I can already feel, I'm not saying it's going to reverse his Parkinson's or not, but it just feels like it's making a tiny bit of difference where he doesn't seem to be deteriorating quite as fast. And for me, that's super important. You know, I want him to have quality of life. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not rocket science. Yet there's so many people doing fad diets, you know, talking about all these things that most people are not getting the basics right. So they don't need to be worrying about the nitty gritty. You know, if we can get the basics right 
as a whole, as a society, like 80% of us eat 80% of the time well, then actually we'd probably shift lifestyle disease to being, um, you know, much less of a, you know, uh, incidence of it. Yeah, I think focusing on getting your foundations right is going to make a massive difference, regardless of who you are or what your situation is. Just making sure that you are eating more vegetables and you are going for a walk every day if you can and you are eating enough protein and stuff. These things will make a massive difference. So what can people listening to this do to check their own breasts? We know that we're supposed to look out for lumps, but what else is there? So there's so many different things that we need to check out for, look out for. And, you know, it's not just about older women. It's about younger women, too, and um, you know, all sorts of different people. So we need to remember that. So things like dimpling of, of the skin, like the nipple inversion, discharge, not just lumps, but any sort of... Um, something that looks different to normal. And you have to look under your arm. So I'm going to do this visual, like armpit as well, and underneath as well. And I think that, and also in your nose, again, with your shoulder and your neck, because your lymph, your breast tissue spreads further and the lymph, which uh, which carries the lymph, the tissue fluid, you know, spreads into all these areas. So we really need to be looking at any changes for you. So for somebody, you know, for some people, it might be that, you know, their nipple shows discharge. So for some people, it might be an actual lump. For some people, it's just that nipples inverted, in fact, even. And things, so, you know, we just have to keep looking out for differences. Do you think that there are differences within different ethnic backgrounds? Not really. I mean, skin coloration stuff isn't one of those things that um, necessarily is very apparent for breast cancer but like I mean the signs are very much the same now the, the difference is in the amount of awareness of the signs so we know that sadly there's less education and less awareness of cancer symptoms whether it's breast cancer bowel cancer brain cancer whatever it might be in BAME groups so that's black Asian ethnic minorities and we need to really think about kind of educating those groups but also educating them in the way they like to be educated and to how to disseminate the information in the way that's useful for them so there's no point putting that information like I you know there's some really great campaigns like the check and change at the moment, like which is in the stores, at the, um, like when you're shopping, but then is it in the Indian stores? Is it in the Afro-Caribbean stores? I don't know, you know? So, I mean, we need to make sure that it's inclusive. It might be when it comes to Breast Cancer Awareness Month in like all the women's magazines, but is it in the magazines that um, you know, are for these communities? Because if the cancer charities are not putting that information out there in the different languages and different visual formats, in different types of media, how can we educate people? And then also we have to remember the stigma within these groups sometimes. People don't want to talk about cancer. They don't want to let other people to know when they've got cancer. And that means sometimes they get diagnosed quite late and you know, much have poor outcomes too. So this is, this is where the other problems lie. I think for me, it's about cancer charities organizations need to be more inclusive. So at the moment, I think there's a, a governmental public health campaign about lumps and you know checking yourself and going to the doctor. But again, it's all older people, but yet cancer happens to everyone. Like when I think about the people I know, so many of them are under 40. So why did these campaigns only show people who are older than that? Why do they not show, you know, everybody of and also different body shapes different sizes you know i'm not saying that the public health one at the moment the tv doesn't show different size of people's bodies it does but they're not showing young people and the sad thing is there are more and more cancers particularly things like testicular and breast cancer and, and bowel cancer which were thought to be older diseases to be happening in younger people how how much of a difference do you think it would make to you and other people to see people in these campaigns that look like you we can only be the change we see so i think a huge so let's not just talk about cancer let's talk about able-bodyism like if we don't see people in campaigns who are disabled or in wheelchairs or have maybe missing limbs then we don't normalize it we don't see people of different body shapes and sizes we're you know, normalizing we're not seeing people from different ethnicities we're not normal so different you know um people from different cultures wearing different costumes and different you know all of that stuff it's so so important and yet we just don't I don't think health campaigns are inclusive in the Western world necessarily. And I think we have to remember that. So just to give you some stats, 
at the moment, obviously Black Lives Matter is a very important campaign, but 3% of the UK are, are Black Afro-Caribbean and 7.5% um, are Asian, whether it's South Asian, Chinese, Indian, you know, and then 2%, 2.2% say they're mixed and 1% say they're other. Yeah, so now suddenly there's a lot more black people at adverts and stuff, but where do you see all the other people too? I'm not saying that's not, that's so important. I'm so happy to see the Sainsbury's ad with the black family, really important. But I'm just saying that in health campaigns, we really need to be a lot more inclusive. And also not just pick people that we think, oh, look, look attractive or whatever, because health is not how you look. I know you and I agree on this, but like health is how you feel. Health is whether you've got resilience. Health is whether you can fight off infection. Health is, you know, whether you're full of vitality and energy and all of these things are so important. So any health campaign needs to be far more inclusive and unless you're being actively inclusive and including people and be actively you know diverse then you're not yeah I think it's it's wonderful that this year we've seen a big increase a small increase in representation of black people in media but it does make sense that then everyone else who is not a white person or a black person is looking at that going, hold on a second, what about us? And I, I think it's going to be an interesting discussion over the next year or two as we as a society navigate that, because it's true. We, we need to be better at including everybody. And people from different backgrounds will have different lived experiences and will have different levels of limitations put on them by society and that's really important too to acknowledge but it does feel a little bit at the moment that a lot of places are probably just using lots of black people to be like look we're doing something and then maybe next year we go back to normal normal inverted commas um so yeah look, look at social media for example right Social media is about white, slim, cisgender, heterosexual, you know, people, essentially. And it promotes those accounts. We know that, that Instagram boss, Musty Airy, has announced that there is some bias and that people who are bigger, people who are of colour, people who are not cisgender, people who are um, not, you know, heterosexual, are being by discriminated against. And this is the same thing as everywhere. We have systemic racism within our NHS and our healthcare systems here. And the BMJ, you know, my friend, Dr. Adrian Milner, who actually she's talked to, um, you know, she wrote a massive paper about the absolute, like the, the kind of the deeply embedded systemic race and how white men are overrepresented in the NHS. Yet the biggest group of people working in the NHS is Chinese and then Asian. So like what's going on there? As I think there's also just a lot of women as well. Yeah, women aren't represented. So. I think what people forget is all of this is intersectional and we have to, as women, and I asked my ex-boyfriend this question because I just thought I was trying to understand why is it I only see women doing this anti-racism work and I know we've kind of gone for the cancer topic but why is it and my ex-boyfriend pointed out really and I just thought wow why didn't I realise this, he said as women you're always being discriminated against, as men, especially as white men we don't get discriminated against and hence why you guys know what it feels like, I thought wow and, you know, and, and I think this is where women, we're going to be the change. We are the change and we have to push for these things. And what we have to do is like with people with their white fragility. And I've had so many discussions when I brought this up with big cancer organizations, they're not getting it. When I've told them that they need to do this work, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they want me to do it for free. I'm like, hang on a second. I'm the only person in the room. I'm the person of color. And yet, why am I doing the work for free? See, that's another form of racism and discrimination. You know, I work really hard just to collect these stats and the numbers and the effects it has physiologically on people. The, you know, the physiological effect of racism and stress and any kind of discrimination, actually. Let's not just talk about racism, like, because it's the worst in trans, it's worse in, you know, LGBTQ, it's all of the same, it's the same thing, right? So why, until the people don't get them, then they become really defensive. So I think we just need a real shake up and maybe, and this all takes stops. We need to be less apathetic as well. And, you know, it is political we need to vote we need to like make change and I find it really scary and I get we're kind of going slightly off topic but 55% of white women voted for Trump that's terrifying given that we know how misogynistic he is he's 
Like, there's so many cases of sexual assault against him, how, you know, sexist he is, yet people vote for him. It is and sexist. is it any different here? White women, I think, are more White willing to women, hold on to that power that they have, even though within society they are still less than, because at least they're only less than white men. So then you're still kind of better than everyone else. Better. But that's the the rudder, the rudder, rudder, ladder of things. Um, yeah. Which is bullshit and it's horrendous. And nothing, nothing will really change until enough white people realise that they need to participate. But it's like, again, as I said before, unless you're actively big anti-whatever, then you're not, you know, being actively, you know, inclusive, you're not. And I think that's, you know, and it's not just you know, about being able, not being just able-bodied, you know, all of the stuff, everything. And like, how can we, you know, we know that their health is surely for everybody. Yet, you know, the outcomes in the UK are, and let's just take three types of things, for example, COVID, childbirth and cancer. I like alliteration. But <laughs> childbirth, you know, black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth in 2020 really like BAME people are way more likely to die from COVID complications and that is there's a whole socioeconomic thing for that but it's also because of the stress of the racism and the stress of life all of those things impact people's inflammation and their health and then when we come to cancer the outcomes are poorer so I mean I've got some stats to share because I, I mean I'm going to just talk you through them because I just feel like it's really frightening and uh yeah just so important so we you know south asian black women had lower breast cancer awareness of white women and then low awareness of cancer risk factors signs and symptoms which we talked about but these are interesting stats black bame communities felt they were treated differently studies found that they're more likely to experience you know, concerns in many aspects of clinical care including 15.8 percent fewer black patients thought they're being seen as soon as necessary um, by their GP before going to the hospital. This is all cancer stats, by the way. 12.6 um, fewer Asian patients felt positive about the length of time they had to wait for their test results compared to white patients. 13.9% fewer patients of mixed ethnic backgrounds said that their test results were explained to them in a way that they understood. And this is all the difference between like how white patients felt. You know, even in screening, cancer survivors from white communities are more likely to receive follow-up screening than the cancer survivors from BAME communities. There's a low uptake of you know, breast cancer screening. Um, participants in clinical trials have better outcomes, but people from BAME groups are less likely to participate because of cultural fears, um, cultural factors, fear and cancer stigma, lack of knowledge you know, in, regarding trials, mistrust of the medical system, just so on and so forth. There's just so many stats and like, this is my kind of the most upsetting. People with cancer, black or Asian, are 41 to 48% more likely than those who are white to say they were only partially involved in their decisions about their care and treatment. Wow. So that means they don't feel like they're being looked after in the same way. We're not, and I say they, we. So, you know, I think it's really important that if we have this kind of level of inequality in this day and age, and essentially we're valuing some lives less than others how do we fix that like how what what needs to happen for the healthcare system to do a better job of looking after everybody equally so i think it all starts with awareness and education um so i think both education of um people but also mostly healthcare professionals so one of the conversations that i've been having with healthcare professionals is do you think you have any unconscious bias and most people are like, no 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 and then I kind of say well do you know what bias is so if we think about biases and reflect on it you know our, our age our gender our gender identity our physical abilities religion sexual orientation weight and many other characteristics are subject to bias and we have inbuilt as humans unconscious bias and about social stereotypes from certain groups of people from other things and we even though we are in a post-race society where everyone theoretically has the same opportunities we don't we really don't and so what we need to do first is look at our own bias so let's just take white privilege white privilege is a societal privilege that benefits white people over non-white people in some societies particularly if they're otherwise under the same social political and economic 
um, circumstances. So our implications of unconscious bias are they're less likely to act, you know, access support, they're poorer healthcare you know, experiences. And we as healthcare professionals, because we are, right? We have to reflect on ourselves. We have to reflect on our colleagues and whether we all fit in the workplace in the same way. Do they face microaggressions? Do we face microaggressions? Do they have the same opportunities for growth and development? And I think that's the only way. It's by also redressing. And I don't think it's about positive quotas and bias and all that stuff, but A, becoming aware of our own unconscious bias in general and, you know, really specifically. And I've done some work on this. We all have that. We really do. And I think for me, it's about owning that and being then being really aware of it. Um, increasing our contact with varied groups, varied ethnicities, you know, abilities, sexualities, genders, cultures, you know, we have to really increase our contact, counter the stereotypes, don't make assumptions and support your colleagues, but respectfully call out bias at work. Because if we don't stand up, how are we going to change it? And ensure that the process of where we allow space to get to know the person and ask another question. And also training, 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 training. And maybe all big organizations like the NHS and cancer organizations all need to go through anti-bias um, training, whether it's you know diversity training, you know, um, anti-racism training, and really break down. And also that can't be done in a group, a group setting. It almost needs to be white people of color who are not black and then black because again even within that if you look at the colonialism you know the british colonized so many uh countries but you know for me let me explain about my background my parents grew up in kenya in africa which is a british colony and uganda um and my but i'm indian so my grandparents came from india because they were british citizens because at the, at the time it was a, you know a british india was a british colony they came to kenya because they're allowed to and there's business opportunities there but how they created uh things in kenya were that they had the white people then they got the brown people to almost do all the admin and kind of everything and then the black people at the bottom and that again creates different you know prejudices and bias so we also have to own that different cultures have got different biases too and we just have to do the work and i think you know, I was just looking at my parents because they've lived here for way longer than they've lived in Africa. You know, they they came here in their 20s. Um, and, yeah, they have a very different experience. They've always lived in London. It's very multicultural. My mum's worked in the NHS. It's very multicultural. Um, and, you know, to maybe their brothers and sisters are still live in Africa where there is a very distinct kind of racial, almost ladder, as you say. So I think it's all of these things. Like, how do we... We have to really break down where this all comes from it comes from you know colonialism and that's so inbred that in depth that you know the world is made for white men there's an amazing book um so it's just i'm just peering it's called invisible women how the world isn't for women and dr Pragya agarwal has another book called sway which talks about the science behind prejudice and bias it's amazing it's definitely worth a read um and i do think that we have to, it's, it's one step at a time. We all have to individually do the work, then as organisations have to do it, then as society. I'm writing down those books that you just said. I will send you the, I, will, I can send you the notes. Yeah, I think this is very important work and it's something that we all need to just be discussing more so that it's at the front of our minds more so that when situations arise, we are better equipped at, challenging them appropriately because I know that people are afraid to say the wrong thing when it comes to racism but also any bias really no one wants to be seen as doing something wrong or as an outcast to the group or whatever so then they will stand by and allow their friends to be racist or sexist or homophobic and then we are in a place where those people who have been behaving that way think that it's okay because they think that you think it's okay. And it becomes okay. So then nothing gets to change. So if you are with your people and they are behaving poorly, you have to call them up on it because you're actually the only one that can. I, I find with a lot of anti-racism work, at the moment a lot of people are are expecting black people to do the work for us but it's not it's not their job and they're all of the work that they're putting out 
in anti-racism isn't getting to the people who need it it's getting to like the people who are already starting to be invested in the idea like you're already a bit bought in you then have to go and talk to your people because your people were not following all of those black people on instagram that is your responsibility and that is your christmas and like okay how awkward do you want your christmas to be but also how often do you see your family maybe this is your only opportunity we have gone way off topic but (laughs) so important like look this is allyship right we all have to be allies and as women in particular as people identify as women um we you know as you shared before we are not equal to men so we have to like do this work and we do have to point it out like you know I have conversations because you know my mum grew up in a cult in a world where it was okay to say coloured not in a mean way but I'm like mum you can't say that you can't say that like and she's not being mean at all she just doesn't know the vocab so I just teach her so I think it's about all of us taking responsibility but all of this impacts health and I'll give you some examples so I um Obviously, if you didn't look at me, you wouldn't know what I, what culture I am. Obviously, if you didn't know my name, but like you know, I sound very from London, you know. And um, I had some. I was doing a radio interview recently where it was somebody from the north of England, BBC, and they said, "Oh, what?" And they said my name, and they pronounced it wrong. It's not that complicated. My name's Toral. It's like Coral with a T. And he said, "I'll." And I said, "Oh, explain it." I said twice, and then he's like, "Oh, I'll try." And I just thought that's a microaggression. No, no, you don't try. That's just my name. How do you like if I call you John and I call you Joan? You know, so do you see what I mean? You kind of almost have to, like the reverse face. There's some really good videos on this, like comedians have done some really good videos. But you're right. It's just something we have to all stand up for. And it's not just about racism. It's about, you know, rights for all people as well. So I'm really conscious when I do events now that, is this suitable for someone in a wheelchair? Is this suitable for somebody who may be uh, a non-binary gender? Is this suitable for um, somebody who's from the LGBTQ community? Am I gonna say anything? Like, it's really important. It is really important. And I think we're slowly getting better at it, sort of, in most instances, apart from for trans people currently in the UK, I feel like we're the worst of all of the Western cultures at the moment for, I don't know about America. America is pretty bad too. I think, I think we might be worse than America. Do. do you think so? I don't know. Like, obviously, like, I just feel like it's equally rubbish. <laughs> I was talking to an American the other day who was like, thank you so much for being so awful. This is the first time in a long time that I haven't felt as bad about being American. I was like, wow, this is good. This is good. Like, <laughs> oh, that's because they got rid of Trump and we've got Bojo still. So this is a problem. We need like an election. Hello, people, you all voted. Um, so yeah, we we <laughs> this is true. They are going to be ahead of the game too. We're like going to be the laughing stock, especially with Brexit. Let's face it. Um, there is look. There's education for all of us. We all have to learn about things and learn about people, right? Because as Brini Brown says, you can't hate people up close. You have to like you know get to know people, get to know comedians. And one thing I do say, and I was saying this to a well-known fitness influencer, is that. If you live in London and you have no friends from other communities, only have white friends, that's problematic because 53% of London identifies as BAME. So that is that means that you're really creating an echo chamber. You need to have, like, you know, look out for friends that are from other communities. So having grown up in London, I find it hard to believe that anyone else that has grown up in London doesn't have friends from other places. But maybe because we grew up here is the key and a lot of people move here after university. So then they just make friends with the people that look like them. And yeah. that is a waste of London. That's the, the whole reason you moved to London is for the whole cosmopolitanness of it, right? And yeah, the no. whole diversity. The best thing about London is that there are also many different people. Um, okay, let me come back to... Yes, sorry, sorry, it's me, I distracted you. <laughs> no, I mean, it's fine. It was really interesting and hopefully people have, are going to walk away from this being like, okay, I need to try harder because that's really important, guys. You need to try harder as a rule. We all do, not just you. Me too, Toral too, that's how it goes. Uh, anyway, so in terms of nutrition and cancer care, are there things that people should do as part of their recovery or is, does that look the same as it looks in the preventative like is it still the same eat your vegetables go for most a of the time it is the same I mean I think we still have to understand a little bit more about soya and 
you know, the impact on breast cancer for stuff. But with cancer generally, it is still the same Mediterranean diet, like, you know, eating like a wide variety of colorful fruits and vegetables, herbs and spices, legumes, the Mediterranean diet, protein, oily fish, and limiting, you know, having a little bit of good quality dairy, having fermented foods, the basic of good health, and limiting the ultra processed food and the red meat it may be and you know the sugar and the sweets and the very calorific um sweet drinks and you know sodas and stuff i mean it'll it isn't i hate to say this phrase but it's not rocket science but it is it's really hard because we also have to remember that our world like i remember this is how old i am i remember when shops were shut on sundays and when they suddenly started opening supermarkets on sundays like food is now available 24 7. like before we didn't have deliver and uber eats you had to go to the takeaway and get it yourself now we can just literally be sitting on our sofa and it comes to your door so we've become more sedentary um and yet we're eating more ultra processed foods and if you look at the stats in london for us um the amount of, not obviously this year because this year everyone's been at home but generally the amount of meals that are eaten outside of the home are actually like it's over 50 60 percent and that means that all those meals that you buy they're not high necessarily in fruits and vegetables and whole grains and you know i'm not saying that you can't buy healthy food but if you think about the average person they might get a go to work get a coffee on the way maybe like a pastry or something or even a yoga pot or even a swiss birch music whatever they get at lunchtime they'll go and get a sandwich or something and then even if they come back and make pasta, then like, hang, how many portions of fruit and vegetables have they actually had? And they might not think they're being unhealthy necessarily, but it's about really kind of shifting the balance. And it's it's this whole thing. Like when I was little, my mum just, I just ate what my mum gave me. And that was lots of vegetables and, you know, fruit. Now when I look at my, you know, family members with their children, the, some children are like that, but a lot of children I know, they're so fussy about what they eat. They don't eat vegetables. They don't just, every, you know, if you've got three children, you're making three different meals. And I think that's crazy. Like what has happened that we're not able to eat together in a way that we don't know the basic cooking skills. We don't teach people how to make things from vegetables. You know, like I said, there's a stat, 42% of children don't know that chips come from potatoes. <laughs> so we're so dissociated from our food as a society now compared to before. Um, and like, even like this whole thing with lockdown, like people realizing that you know everything is the supermarket chains are not infallible and how many things are run out like flour or whatever it wasn't you know and we need to be looking at where we get our food from um look at smaller local sustainable you know uh, producers because if we rely on these big things that can all go wrong sometimes and it doesn't have to be expensive if you know, frozen fruit and vegetables are fine tins are great like it's just about it, making sure that we know how to eat so we have like for me i just try and have two or three portions of fruit and vegetable every meal then i know i'm okay everything else is kind of then okay because if you focus on getting the good stuff in there's less space for the bad stuff i i think something that stops a lot of people from eating more vegetables is that they just don't know what to do with them so what is a really easy thing that people listening now could do to get five different vegetables into their day? Okay, so let's talk you through this. So firstly, one of the things I do do is either buy a vegetable box, so you're going to have to eat a diversity. And twice a week, I just kind of chop up and roast a whole load of vegetables. I'm talking about winter. You know, and like all different things, like pumpkins, peppers, aubergines, courgettes, you know, whatever comes in the thing, swedes, turnips, whatever. And then it's just ready in the fridge. And then you can assemble things from those vegetables. So for example, in the morning, I don't have like a sugar-filled breakfast. I'm more likely to have, you know, egg, like a frittata with like whatever leftover vegetables need to go, maybe with a little bit of cheese and I'll have something like that. And then maybe at lunchtime, I'll have um, something like, I have to actually try and always try and have leftovers from the night before, to be honest, or like, or, or, or some, you know, something, add some lettuce leaves or something, you know, maybe like have a bean chili, something I can just warm up quickly. And the dinner, I'll make sure there's a good, like half my plate is full of vegetables, whatever there might be, not potatoes, obviously, like non-starchy vegetables. And even like things like tender stem broccoli and beans and all of those things, like I just chop them up. And once it's ready, because basically whether you chop up two vegetables or 10, it doesn't take that much longer and you only have the board to wash. So I just try to think of ahead like that. Like today, Tuesday is my day when I'm always running out because I do it on sort of Sundays and, or Saturdays and then like Wednesday again. And so I'm already thinking to what am I going to eat? You know, but like batch cooking um, and putting things in the freezer and like making big pots of 
like big pots of like chunky soups and adding some chicken or whatever you want to add in. You know, I think that's where we've lost the whole kind of cooking thing. It doesn't have to be complicated. And having a few good quality like sauces, a, a couple of really good cookbooks, is just so helpful because if you can base it, you know, kind of master like 10 to 15 recipes and then try and mix them up again, you know, you're going to get a good variety and it doesn't have to be like super, look super pretty or anything, but try and have that variety and try you know, and buy a one new vegetable every time you go shopping and then, you know, internet, find out what to do with it. There, there's a website that I used to use all the time. Um, I'll, if I remember, I'll put the link in the description box, but it was basically like this recipe builder. So you clicked what, food you had and then it gave you all the all the recipes of things that you could make with the things that you had and like how long it would take and that was excellent that was a great way to learn how to use all of the things that's a really good idea like I mean that's essentially what you need to be doing also something like you know frittata you can just check any vegetables in like if you have a whole grain salad I just add loads of roast vegetables and then do something either like a harissa dressing or maybe like a pesto dressing or whatever just to flavor it all because vegetables just need texture and flavor so don't overcook your vegetables that's the other thing and that's I think that's people's experience of having overcooked disgusting vegetables as they were growing up or from school dinners and now you know it's a different world yeah, it's a different world hopefully people listening to this feel inspired to just go throw some things together because I, th I think something that is great about winter food especially is you can literally just throw loads of vegetables into a pot or into a tray and it becomes something delicious and then either you whoosh it and it's a soup or you don't whoosh it and it's a stew or you like throw it into a, some leaves and it's a salad like it Exactly. That's why this whole re-roasting vegetables I find really, or prepping vegetables is really helpful because then you don't have, you're not stuck with, oh, I made this meal and now I have to eat it three times. Because you don't have to do that. You can just mix it up differently. And I think textures, like if you even have warm salads, like adding things like different types of nuts, adding different types of seeds, adding little crumbles of cheese, adding little bits of protein, adding, you know, nice olive oil, adding some herbs and spices, all of that stuff makes such a difference. It doesn't have to be like complicated. And even like just stir frying things, I always think so nutritious, so good. Like having things like garlic and chili and ginger, whatever it is in the in the fridge to and fresh herbs. Honestly, they add so much flavor. They make everything taste better. And I think this is where a lot of people go wrong when it comes to cooking, which is why they think that vegetables don't taste nice, is that maybe they only use a bit of salt and then that's it. And like loads of vegetables are very flavorsome, but also herbs and spices they need flavor they have to carry them yeah like yesterday i had a mushroom and tofu stir fry because on mondays i pretty much eat vegetarian and um i was from ching hung's but and i tweaked it and it was just honestly one of the nicest things i've cooked in age like it was all random stuff the fridge kind of a bit like you like you know, look having that recipe but i was just a bit like oh, okay i've got this stuff in the fridge and i just looked through a couple of cookbooks and i found this thing and i tweaked it and i was like you know what did i add a bit of soy sauce a bit of garlic a bit of sriracha a bit of black vinegar you know like it wasn't that much stuff and some peanut butter some peanut and I was like this is amazing so you know you don't need to necessarily have loads of flavors in your fridge and your cupboard just a few that you really like and then different combinations of them um and I think we're so lucky in the UK we have such good supermarkets with so many good you know world ingredients so make the most of them I mean I think that's where it's about adding flavor and texture Vegetables is about adding flavour and texture. We have garlic and fresh herbs and squeezed lemon juice. Even that works. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. Before I let you go, I would like you to share a fun fact. I like to ask my guests to share random fun facts. It can be about anything you want. Do you have a fun fact for me? Yeah, I have a super fun fact because somebody posted the other day that 8% of the world have blue eyes. And I thought, hang on a second. Hmm, what about all the other eye colours? So my dad has grey eyes and my brother and I have hazel eyes and some of my members of my family have green eyes. So I thought, let me investigate this. So 8% of the world have blue eyes, but then 5% of the world have hazel eyes and 2% of the world have uh, grey eyes and 1% have green eyes. Was it that way around? Something like that. And I just thought, wow, that's super interesting that... Wait, wait, that doesn't add up to 100% though. No, I didn't talk about the brown ones, all the rest are brown. 
everyone else has brown eyes right okay thanks <laughs> sorry i didn't i didn't make sure i'm just talking about the the non-brown eyes but like, yeah <laughs> and i just found like it was interesting because how people think blue eyes are right rare but they're not as rare as you know and given that what there's seven billion people at least in the world only a billion people maximum are white caucasian origins so it's interesting i thought you know there might have blue eyes but you know there's lots of um Indian, Nepalese, Bhutanese, yeah, people have blue eyes, green eyes, grey eyes. So it's been, I thought it was very interesting. That is really cool. I don't know if I've ever seen anyone with grey eyes before. My dad, my nephew, they're like grey, kind of grey, greeny. Yeah, they're really... I feel like you're going to need to take a photo of your dad or nephew's eyes. I I do, I have got a photo, I'll share it. But yeah, (laughs) it's hard to tell with eye colour, but my dad's a bit squinty. But yeah, I will will send you a picture. Excellent. Thank you very much for your fun fact and for your time today that was super interesting totally off topic in the middle but still super interesting and hopefully people didn't mind when they came for cancer maybe I'll warn them that it's also anti-racism and if people want to find you on the interwebs where can they do so interwebs so I've made my own website www.theurbankitchen.co.uk but I'm not as good at updating that but Instagram is probably my biggest platform at the urban kitchen uh Facebook urban kitchen London uh you know usual Twitter so come and find me I'm always sharing recipes by the way as well so if you want to know what your vegetables are, mainly I share vegetarian recipes and vegetable recipes because everyone else knows how to put a piece of chicken or fish with that. So have a look, um, lots of recipes on there. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. You're so welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening, folks. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And please do share this episode with your friends. You've had time to listen and to think about it. Now's your chance. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Superpenny. Penny is spelt with an I-E, not a Y. You know the amount of emails I get addressed to Penny with a Y? You literally have to type Penny with an I-E for your email to get to me. It's in my email address. What goes wrong between the to field and the message box? Part of me is always tempted to reply back spelling their name wrong, but it's kind of passive-aggressive, so I just rise above, you know, I rise above. Besides, I actually don't even reply most of the time. It can't be that important if you can't get my name right, right? Anyway, don't mind me and my rant about those little microaggressions, but they do build up over time, my friends. They do build up over time. I hope you have enjoyed this show and if you make any of Toral's veggie recipes I would really love it if you tagged us both in the post so we can see. I'm always so enamoured by how well other people are able to present food. That is not a skill I possess. If you have a look at Toral's Instagram you'll see it is absolutely a skill that she does. Have a good weekend folks, until next time.